Greetings and welcome. My name is James White, and we have been engaging in a series of studies, exciting series of studies about the Bible, how it came to us, and why we can trust it. We've talked about what we believe about inspiration, uh, about the nature of the text as God-breathed revelation, and right now we're in the middle of looking at how the text actually came to us. That is, once it was written under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, how did it come to us? I, I know that I was raised, and, and somehow in, in my education, it wasn't a part of my teaching as a young person to come to realize that the Bible had ever existed in any form other than the nice leather-bound 66 books that I had in my hand. But of course, that's not how the Bible came into existence. Since it was written by 40 different authors over about uh, 1,500 years worth of time, clearly there was a period of time in which each of the books of the Bible existed as a unit unto itself and had a, had a much smaller audience that it eventually would come to have. We've been specifically looking at how the New Testament came to us. How can we trust that during those turbulent times when the Christian church was under persecution, when the Romans were, were, were killing Christians, literally uh, using them as, as lamps to light Nero's garden parties, uh, tying them to stakes and burning them, how gruesome the, the, the persecution of Christians was is uh, normally not known to a lot of people. But during that time, how do we know that the texts of the Scripture were passed on safely to the next generation, the next generation? And we've even been looking at some of the manuscripts themselves. We're looking at some of the early papyri manuscripts. In fact, uh, on the screen now, I have uh, P75. It contains portions of Luke and John. And once again, you can see in this papyri manuscript, a much fuller papyri manuscript than some of the others we've looked at, you can see that this was not a professional scribe who was doing this. The lines aren't, you know, uh, perfect, uh, but it's fairly well done. And this would come from around AD 175 to 200 to 225, around that time period. And it is an important witness to the gospel text and the fact that clearly, very early on, the gospels were put together uh, as, as a whole. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Here, Luke and John together in manuscript P75. Another important manuscript uh, that we see here is manuscript P66. And uh, this particular manuscript gives us, uh, again, a very early text around the same time as P75. But notice here, instead of seeing just one page, what you're seeing is what the whole document looks like. And, and look especially along the edges. See how the edges have broken off? See how even over on the one side where the text just disappears? That's what happens, obviously, when a book is uh, buried in the sand for a long period of time. And uh, th just simply the ravages of time, uh, maybe the dryness of the environment or even the moisture of the environment, depending on what it's in, will eat away at the sides of these pages. So, for example, in my critical edition of the Greek New Testament, sometimes I'll be reading along. And I just happened to look down at the page here, and here's manuscript P66 being cited. But it has a, a little notation next to it that indicates uh, well, we think this is what it says, but we can't necessarily tell. You can see why, looking at this picture, why that would be. That is, if it's over toward the edge or even off of the edge, sometimes scholars will go, well, we know exactly how many words are, are in other manuscripts at this point, 
And even though the edge here is missing, uh, we can tell whether this word would have fit in what the space is or whether it wouldn't have. It's amazing the science of what's called textual criticism, where you examine these manuscripts. And of course, today, we can examine them in ways that you couldn't only 100 years ago. Uh, today, we can use special kinds of lighting and computer imaging and things like that. And in fact, some of these manuscripts, when we get into the, the later leather manuscripts, uh, are called palimpsests. And what they do is since it was made of leather later on, sometimes they would wipe off what had been written on it before and write something new over it. And what had been written on it before might have been a New Testament text and a very ancient New Testament text. Today, what we can do using ultraviolet lighting and, and computer-assisted uh, imaging, we are able to bring that original text back out and really, in essence, regain what had been a lost manuscript. And so the science of textual criticism is really fascinating. And this manuscript, for example, P66, is very important as a, as a witness to the Gospel of John, just as was P75 and, um, and uh, earlier manuscripts, P52. Now, here is another extremely important manuscript, manuscript P46. This one contains the writings of the Apostle Paul, and they've all been collected together into, into one book. And again, you can see around the edges, the, the ravages of time have taken their toll. But you'll notice not quite as badly. There's only some, some text lost down toward the bottom of the page. And so again, if I were to turn to Paul's writings in my, in, in my Greek New Testament here, I will find manuscript P46 right here at the bottom of the page being cited as one of the witnesses. And I can actually reconstruct exactly what's found in the image you're looking at here from the notes found in the bottom of this critical edition of the Greek New Testament, which, which all uh, scholars of the original languages, which pastors not only have available to them in, in wonderful printed editions today, which become then the basis of our modern translations, but these things are also now available in computerized form. And in fact, scholars today are working on taking high-resolution, high-quality, full-color images of all of these manuscripts. And I truly believe that with probably within 10 years or so, to Christian scholars and laymen alike, on their handheld device, on their, on their laptop, on their computer, they will have access to all of these manuscripts and hence will be able to examine them for themselves to see what they think that particular manuscript is saying, to look exactly at the wording themselves. You see, Christians have no reason to be hiding anything about our history. We want these things out in the open. We want these manuscripts available to everyone to examine these things because we are convinced that the more fair and scholarly examination it's done. When I say fair, what I mean is fair in allowing the manuscripts to say what they say and not immediately importing in a secular concept or an atheistic concept, but that will allow the facts to be the facts. The more fair and balanced examination of the history of the Christian faith and even the text of the Christian faith, the better. Because the more we've examined these things, the more certain our knowledge of the New Testament has become. So here's manuscript P46 from very, again, very early on during the period of time of the writing of papyri manuscripts. And remember, as we said in our last study, and even as you look at this image, you can still see that the unseal form of writing is being used. What is the unseal form of writing? All capital letters 
no spaces between words, uh, no marking of sentence beginning and end. Sometimes there might be a little indication of a paragraph break or something like that. But generally, just the text in all capital letters. That is what predominates up through the 7th and 8th centuries of the Christian era when it is replaced by what's called the minuscule text where you have much more like I have in this Greek New Testament where you have large letters, capital letters, and small letters, and then you likewise have breaks between words, and then you have a form of punctuation being inserted. Now, what that means is punctuation, paragraph breaks, and even especially in English Bibles, well, all Bibles really today, the verse and chapter divisions all came later. They are not a part of the inspired text. They come later, they are editorial, and sometimes uh, where chapter breaks are found or verse divisions are found uh, actually is, is really uh, separating logical thoughts within the text and are really bad. Uh, as I read through the text of Scripture at times, I go, why in the world did they put a break here? Why did they break a chapter here? Sometimes it makes no sense whatsoever. Here's an example, for example, of uh, Ephesians chapter 2 from the Chester Beatty papyri. This is a, a, another uh, clear example of how the papyri appear today. And I've even provided an a, a expanded portion so you can see exactly what the unsealed text looks like. You can see this is definitely handwritten. And we're still in that period of time before professional scribes have become involved. You can, especially in this one, see the nature of the papyri as, it's, as it has decayed along the edge. You can see exactly where the leaves were laid side by side and crossed from one another to, to create uh, this papyri manuscript. But finally, after the peace of the church, after Christianity was no longer under persecution by the Roman Empire, the church could use better materials and could use professional scribes in the creation of her manuscripts. And so beginning in the 4th century, around the time of the Council of Nicaea in A.D. 325, we begin to find what are called uh, the great codices, the great codexes of the New Testament. For example, here a picture of Codex Sinaiticus. Codex Sinaiticus was found by Count von Tischendorf in the middle of the 19th century at St. Catherine's Monastery. And this is one of the only complete, it's certainly one of the earliest complete texts of the Bible, both the Old Testament in Greek and the New Testament in Greek as well. And as we look at Codex Sinaiticus, you can see something has changed from the papyri. Specifically, now we are looking at a leather-type surface, which is much more durable. It, is mu it, it lasts a lot longer, and it's easier to write on. You can also see, looking at this, that it's amazing that that is actually handwriting. It looks like it has been printed. In other words, a professional scribe, the lines are very straight. There, there's columns. You can see markings in the columns. Sometimes those are later emendations made by, by someone else. Uh, sometimes they're just notes that have been made. But you can see this looks different from what we've been looking at before. This was done not just by one professional scribe, but by a whole group of professional scribes. Because as you can imagine, trying to produce something as large as the entirety of the Bible, not just the Old and New Testament, uh, the Old Testament, but the New Testament and the Old Testament put together. That's a huge undertaking. 
that would take a long period of time. So not one scribe was used, a number of scribes were used, and yet the untrained eye has difficulty differentiating between their handwriting styles. Now, there are entire books written just on this one manuscript, examining in minute detail uh, the writing styles and the, the scribal habits of each one of the scribes. And in fact, scholars can even go to the point of saying, well, this was scribe A, this was scribe B, this was scribe C. We can see that he wrote this and this one wrote that one. And, and you, can, you can honestly dive into it to that level, that depth. But the point is, this is a huge undertaking and hence would have taken money. And some people have pointed out that, uh, like Dan Brown says, that Constantine had these whole new Bibles uh, written that were different from the Bibles that, that existed beforehand. What is said in a letter to a man named Eusebius is that Constantine, recognizing that the Roman Empire uh, had sought to destroy the Christian scriptures, felt it would be appropriate for the Roman Empire to contribute toward the copying of the Christian scriptures. Now, he didn't tell the Christians what scriptures to copy. Instead, he did provide imperial money for this kind of project. And many scholars feel that Codex Sinaiticus and this codex here, uh, Codex Vaticanus, were both the result of Constantine giving that money for, an er for the early editions of the Bible, the whole Bible, to be produced around the time of the Council of Nicaea. Now, when you compare, for example, Codex Vaticanus, or here is another picture of Codex Sinaiticus as it exists today, in, opened up as a book. A, 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 that's exactly what it looked like when I saw it just a few years ago in London myself. Uh, when you compare the text of these great codices with the papyri, it's the same text. You see, the papyri were discovered after these great manuscripts were discovered. And so people thought, well, this is still, this is 325 years later, maybe something has been changed. But now what happens as these papyri are discovered, we are able to look at what they say, compare that with what these great codices said, and what do we discover? Massive changes over 100 years? Great editing? No, not at all. Instead, we have the exact same text being given to us in this case as well. Now, are there variations in each of these handwritten manuscripts? There are. We're going to look at how we can determine what the original reading was by examining these manuscripts in just uh, a little bit later. But here we have Sinaiticus, which when it was first discovered, when, when Count von Tischendorf found this manuscript, a monk had it in his cell in the monastery wrapped in red cloth. And when that monk brought this out, you see what had happened was von Tischendorf had, had earlier visited the monastery and had frightened the monks. Now, you don't want to frighten monks. And how he had done this was, was when he had first visited many years earlier, he had seen a monk walking by with, in essence, a trash can, a trash basket. And he happened to, to just look into it, and he saw what looked like a like ancient Greek writing. And so he stopped the monk, and he began to pull these things out. Remember, they had an entire library there. And these manuscripts would tend over time to fall apart. So stuff would just fall out on the floor. So they'd pick it up, and they'd go take it, and they'd burn it. It burned real well. They didn't know, they didn't realize how valuable this stuff was. And so von Tischendorf is looking at this stuff, and he's, he's going, you, you're, you burn this? Oh, we've burned cases full of this stuff. And he's like, you can't do that. This is extremely valuable. Now, here's an outsider coming into their monastery saying, your trash is extremely valuable. And this caused the monks to be just a, a little bit um, 
uh, caused to be shy, and so they didn't want to talk to him anymore about these things. But at least they stopped burning the manuscripts. That was a good thing. Um, and so he had actually come back a couple of times. This was many years later now. He's learned his lesson. And when this monk brings Codex Sinaiticus out of his closet, in essence, it's wrapped in red cloth, and he unwraps it, and von Tischendorf looks at this manuscript, he realizes what it is. He realizes he's looking at a, a book that is probably 1,500 years old and is the earliest manuscript of the Christian scriptures in existence. But he learned his lesson. And so instead of going, you know, getting extremely excited, instead he goes, oh, yeah, the Greek Septuagint, so the Greek translation of the Old Testament, yeah. Would you, would you mind if I just took a look at this uh, uh, overnight? And so the monk allows him to do so. And of course, once he's alone, he's just pouring over this text and, and making notes. And he tries to buy it the next day. And it's a long story as to how it eventually ended up uh, in, uh, in London, the British Library. But, but the fact of the matter is, here is how it came to be found. It, it had been very carefully preserved for 1,500 years. Now, again, let's, let's put this in, in, in perspective. This is coming Far closer, Codex Sinaiticus, uh, or here, Codex Vaticanus, or even here, Codex Alexandrinus, which when I saw Sinaiticus in London a few years ago, Codex Alexandrinus was right next to it. It's physically a smaller manuscript, uh, but also a very early manuscript, very beautifully uh, written manuscript. These manuscripts all exist far closer to the writing of the New Testament than almost any other ancient document. Scholars study certain historical documents uh, from, from Greece and from Rome, and their original, the, the, the earliest manuscripts they have are 500, 800, 900 years after the time it was originally written, and they study those things all the time. They're jealous of New Testament scholars that have such an embarrassing wealth of manuscript evidence from which to draw from. And so when I look, for example, at my critical edition of the Greek New Testament here, and I look in, uh, in the Gospels especially, I am able to look down at the bottom of the page, and here I just looked, and, and here is the letter A. A refers to Codex Alexandrinus. And then I have the Hebrew letter Aleph, which refers to Sinaiticus. The, the letter B, which refers to Codex Vaticanus. I am able to look down at the bottom of the page, and if there is a variation in word order or spelling, I'm able to look at the bottom of the page and go, oh, here's what the papyri manuscript, here's what P75 says, here's what Sinaiticus says, here's what Vaticanus says, and this information we make available to the world. We do not hide anything from the world. We want people to understand exactly what is here. And that is important for people to understand because some people have the idea that there's sort of a, well, a conspiracy going on to where somehow Christians are trying to make their scriptures look better or change their scriptures or something like that. That simply isn't the case. And the scholars who produce the modern translations throughout the world today, they all have access to the exact same information. No one's controlling it. There's not some one committee that is controlling all of these things and saying, well, uh, this is how it is to be done. Even when the committee that produces this text, and there's another revision of this text coming out uh, in just a matter of months, there is a whole new uh, committee working on another edition 
of the Greek New Testament from another perspective. They have a different way of citing the manuscript evidence. Completely different group of scholars. And these scholars normally come from a, a wide variety of Christian backgrounds. And so you see, there isn't any basis for anyone to, to create conspiracy theories to say that, well, those Christians are just changing their scriptures. Uh, they they want to make things look better. They, they're, they're hiding what is... No, that is not the case at all. We want this information available to everyone. Now, obviously, uh, all of this may be quite interesting in regards to the ancient manuscripts and, and the fact that after, for example, this time period, we have all these, these leather manuscripts uh, that are developed. Eventually, a new writing style develops, as I mentioned before, and here's, a, here's an image of it, of the minuscule text. Between uh, the 8th, 9th century, the unsealed text disappears, and the minuscule text appears, and that is what you have in the vast majority of medieval manuscripts that are copied in the New Testament, is this form of text where you have capital letters and small letters, spaces between words. But while all of that is very, very interesting and very, very important, for most people, whether Christian or non, the real issue they want to address is, all right, there's your manuscript evidence. You're drawing from about 5,300 manuscripts in the New Testament. That does not mean every manuscript contains all of the New Testament. Uh, a certain book might have 900 manuscripts or 1,500 manuscripts or only 300 manuscripts uh, for some of the smaller books or some of the less popular books. But there are about 5,300 Greek manuscripts, some as small as P52, which we saw before, which is only one little fragment, to the books that we've seen here that contain all of the Greek New Testament as well. About 5,300 and about 25 to 30,000 manuscripts in other languages. Because remember, Christians also believed that it was good to translate the Bible into other languages. And so very early on, Latin, Boharic, Syriac, Coptic, these languages received translations of the New Testament. One of the ironies is one of the last languages uh, in at least the first millennium to receive a translation is the Arabic language. The earliest manuscripts we have in Arabic come from around the end of the ninth century. And so translations likewise can be very helpful to us, especially those very primitive early translations in determining whether a word was or was not found in the text from which it was translated. But many people say, all that's fascinating. But what about this particular word? What about in John 1.18, where some Bibles describe Jesus as the only begotten Son, but some Bibles describe him as the unique God? Son and God are two different things. Or what about 1 Timothy 3.16, where again, some Bibles say God was manifest in the flesh, but other Bibles say he who was manifest in the flesh. That's where people really want to say, all right, show me what all of this manuscript evidence, how could someone, could someone like me even come to a decision on issues like this? Or am I just dependent upon what the quote-unquote scholars say? Well, there was a period of time when only scholars had access to that kind of information. But that isn't the case any longer. That information is now much more generally available than it ever was before. And so what scholars do is they take this wealth of information and knowing how scribes copied things, we're able to look at these variants and what we'll do in our next study is we'll look at those very variants. How can we make a determination? Why do some Bibles read one way and some Bibles read another way? 
and will lay the information out in front of you and show you it's not a matter of conspiracies. There are some people would say, well, you see, somebody's trying to sneak the deity of Christ into the Bible there. But then a whole other, other group of people would say, oh, no, no, it's just the opposite. They're trying, to, they're trying to sneak the deity of Christ out of there. Is it really a conspiracy? Or is there a much easier explanation as to why variations exist in a small percentage of the text? Meaningful variations exist in a small percentage of the text. And how can we determine them? That's what we'll look at in our next study. Thank you.